going to continue our subject matter, an excellent spirit. This morning, specifically, I'm going to be addressing the subject matter of overcoming temptation. My opening text is Daniel chapter 5 and verse 12, and it says, In as much as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting of dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. A man of impeccable character, above reproach. And this was the testimony of Daniel among his contemporaries and among those in a foreign land. While he was abducted and taken there as a teenager and not knowing really what his future looked like, he did not compromise and did not bend to the ways of the culture, but stayed true to his faith in God. And then in chapter 6, in verse 3, it says, Then this Daniel, so that we know it's talking about the same man, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors, the satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. That's really quite a compliment when a king who's abducted you because you're one of the brightest and the best and you're handsome and you show uh, you show potential, but when then that potential begins to take shape and form, and, and the king said, there's no one like Daniel among all my governors, among all my rulers. And remember last week I gave you the definition of a satrap. It's next to a sand trap, so for all you golfers, beware of that. But no, a satrap is a ruler under a governor, and like a lieutenant governor. And, and, uh, and all of these people who were Babylonians, uh, looked among themselves, and even the king, the, the highest authority in the land, said, you know, Daniel is, is the one that I'm highly considering and giving a lot of thought that maybe he needs to be in a place of greater governance. And it was because there was an excellent spirit within him. I've known people, and you have too throughout the years, that they're in places and they're doing things even though it doesn't seem like they should be there or doing what they're doing for one reason, and that is they conducted themselves in an honorable way. They were promotable. They were teachable. They were excellent in spirit. And even though they weren't formally trained to do certain things, the people around them said there's no one else that we trust or can entrust with this responsibility other than this individual. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for education and I, I had the privilege, uh, to get a college degree and, and I'm humbled by that opportunity because I was the first grandchild in my family to get a degree from the university. And, uh, that path wasn't one that many, uh, uh, in my family ever pursued. And, and if they did, maybe they were this there for a short amount of time, but I, I can say, Without hesitation and, and no, no problems whatsoever. I've worked with people that didn't go to university and yet they were promotable. They had an excellent spirit within them. And even though they didn't meet all of the qualifications, they were qualified because of their character. They were qualified because of their character and they could be entrusted with things. 
And there's something to be said about that in our world today, that people of character are going to rise to the top. They're, they're going to be promoted. And that's something that we have to be aware of. Sometimes we think, well, if I, if I get this degree or if I get this, uh, if I go down this path educationally, then it, it, it might make, uh, you know, uh, my income or my, uh, my, my promotability better, but you know, you keep serving the Lord and, and, uh, if education isn't a path that necessarily is in your future, if you're on the path that God has you on, then you have a great future because you're right in step with Him and right in step with His plan. So let's define a couple things, uh, in your, in your notes. Let's look at excellence and this is for our study. There's probably 10 different definitions, but I thought this one was really, really good. It says doing your best with what God has given or entrusted to you. We should strive to excel in these areas, knowledge, attitude, work, stewardship, morals, relationships, and character. And that seems like uh, something we can and, and should desire as Christians. We should desire to excel. Once again, our text tells us that Daniel distinguished himself above all the governors. What does that mean? He excelled. Why did he excel? Because he was a person of excellence. He was a person of excellence. So not only did he go the first mile, I, I believe that he went the second mile. I think not only was he willing, he was willing and obedient. All of these things speak highly of Daniel. In order to develop excellence, you must first understand that God himself is the source and object of all excellence. This prevents you from falling prey to the temptation of looking to someone other than him. And sometimes when we talk about striving in excellence, uh, and we, we think if we hook our wagon to an individual, then that's the road and, and that's the path we should take. But we should hook our wagon to Jesus and allow him to lead and for us to follow. So we have to understand God has done all things well, not some things. Scripture says God has done all things well. Everything that he does, he does well. And he does above and beyond. Scripture even says in Ephesians 3.20 that he does exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. That's excellence. That's excellence. So you ask God for a little and he'll say, I'll give you more than enough because that's who he is. He's more than enough. A person with excellence has more than enough to give to others. Why? Because they first go to the source of excellence and that's God. They draw from an endless resource of God. And drawing from an endless resource, they themselves become a resource to others. And they develop an excellent spirit. Once again, we want to grow and excel in our knowledge, our attitude, work, stewardship, morals, relationships, and, of course, character. Temptation, simple definition of temptation so that we understand what it is. It's to act independent of God. That's all temptation summarized. It's to act independent of God. So in order to be tempted, you have to know something. You have to be aware of something. You have to understand something. Because when we're tempted, we are tempted to do the opposite of what we know about God, what we understand about God, what we've experienced with God. And so all temptation can be summarized in these three categories. 
the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. No matter what way we're being pulled, either by the enemy or by the world or our own carnal desires, it falls into one of those three categories. It's eye candy. That's the lust of the eyes. Something your eyes see, and we have to guard our eyes because they're gateways. They're gateways that lead to our soul. You and I have to protect our eyes. Lust begins in the eye. And that's why Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look at a woman with lust. And that would go for any gender. But Job said that if I get to looking, I get to longing. All right. So then we talk about the other two uh, categories, the lust of the flesh. And Galatians chapter 5 tells us all the things the flesh is constantly working at. There's unnatural and improper sexual impulses in the flesh. And then there's things like idolatry and adultery. And then things like uh, greed. Or various forms of selfishness or carnality. That all comes from the flesh. And the work that the flesh wants to do. And then, of course, we look at the pride of life. Of course, when the enemy is pulling on us, acting independent of God is being prideful. To think that we can go down a certain path and see success apart from God is actually a step of pride. Humility, of course, is the path that leads to help. And pride leads to problems. And things escalate in our life when we go down the path of pride. And we're tempted to go down that path, to act independent at times from the knowledge of God that we have or the experiences we have or the understanding that we have of the Lord. So here's some truths about temptation. First of all, Join me in the New Testament as we look at a couple of scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is uh, the first, and then we'll look at James chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 reads this way. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. One of the tricks about temptation is that you're the only one who's being tempted in this way. It's one of the ways the tempter spins or twists a temptation. And the Apostle Paul's reminding us that no temptation has overtaken you except as common to man. So it gets rid of the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Or no one else is doing it, so I must do it. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, beyond your maturity level. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So in the moment of temptation, the old character of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder is really a pretty good depiction of what's happening in that moment. The tempter is is pulling us through the lust of the eyes and and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, to act independent of God and go down this path. And, And he's giving us a case why that is the path that we should go on. And then, And then God, by his Spirit, is pulling on us 
to remember that there's another path, and it's a path that God will lead us on around temptation. And that's for his namesake, so that he may be glorified. Then in James, James gives us some really good insight when it comes to the subject matter of temptation. So if you go back to uh, the latter part of the New Testament, and uh, if you hit the book of Hebrews, right next to the book of Hebrews is the book of James. And James writes unto us in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, Blessed, blessed is the man who endures temptation. And the word blessed, once again, denotes happiness, fulfillment, and favor. So the person who endures temptation, doesn't give place to it, ends up being fulfilled and happy and fruitful in their life. They're blessed. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved or tested, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. One of the things that's on uh, that's happening when we're when we're being tempted is it it reveals the depth of our love for God. And I believe everyone in this room has a love for God, but that love can grow and increase. And and that love is is sometimes uh, being measured and we're we're understanding to what degree do we love and rely on and trust in the Lord when we're being tempted. So he says that uh, he's promised uh, these crowns of life to those that love him. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But everyone is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desires or his own lust and enticed, or he's drawn away and he becomes inquisitive. If you're enticed, you're, you become, there's this, this in, this impulsive, inquisitive aspect of the flesh and uh, of the natural mind that the natural mind wants to know. And the flesh wants to be in charge. And both of these things are contrary to the work and the way of the spirit. But he says everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires and enticed. Verse 15, then when desire has conceived, it brings uh, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So here's some truths about temptation that we've learned from these texts. We all face them, and they're common to all of us. So, so when you're being tempted, don't believe the lie that you're the only one. They're common. Other people are going through the same scenario. The enemy wants us to believe that we're the only ones. He wants to isolate us so that he can continue to deceive us. And so he's spinning this tale that you're the only one. Uh, but we're not. It's not a sin to be tempted. And this has helped me immensely throughout the years because uh, some people believe that that if they're being tempted that they must be a terrible person. And if, if that's the case, then Jesus was a terrible person. But how many of you know he's not a terrible person? Scripture said he was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. In every way, in every manner. Why? So that he would be a faithful high priest who could make intercession for us and help us in our time of trial. 
In our time of temptation, Jesus is who we go to because he understands what it's like to be tempted. We know he didn't give place to temptation, but it's not a sin to be tempted. The devil will tell you, you must be a horrible person to have that thought. But if you don't act on that horrible thought, you're not a terrible person. If you don't speak those horrible words, you're not giving place to temptation. You might be tempted to say things and you might be tempted to do things. But if you don't say or do them, then you are not giving place to the tempter. But the enemy will say, oh, boy, you must not even be saved. A saved person wouldn't think that way, wouldn't act that way, wouldn't talk that way. And we just need to remind the devil that I am a work in progress. I am under construction and the master builder still has his hand on me. And I am not giving place to this lie. I'm not alone. I'm not going to let you isolate me. And I'm going to go get counsel from Jesus. I'm not going to run from my counselor. I'm going to run to my counselor. I'm going to allow this temptation not to pull me away from God, but to draw me closer to the Lord. All right. The next point I said is God makes a way of escape. For one reason, he is faithful. And those moments when we're tempted not to be faithful, not to be obedient, not to rely and and love the Lord and trust in the Lord, God can't deny himself. He is who he is. He is the faithful one. And let me remind you that even in times when we're not faithful, 1 John 1, 9 says that, you know, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even if you give place to temptation, the faithful one is there to forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if he does that, what does that do to you and I? It positions us back again into fellowship with him. All right, the, since temptation is getting us to act independent of God or desiring us to act independent of God, what does that tell us about God's design for us? That we were created to be dependent upon him. That we were created by God for God. That we were created for fellowship with him. That he would be our God and we would be his people. That's always been God's plan. He's our heavenly father. We are his beloved children. And he desires to fellowship with us. So what breaks that fellowship? What breaks that sweet fellowship is when we act independent of him. But what reestablishes that sweet fellowship? When we go to the one who's faithful, even when we haven't been, and we say, God, would you show mercy on me? Would you once again bestow your forgiveness? Would you show yourself to be faithful? Forgive me, for I have sinned. And the moment we say that, he is faithful to cleanse us at that moment. You don't have to work for it or earn it. Some religions say that, you know, you need to do a certain amount of penance in order to be reestablished in a righteous relationship with God. And all we have to do is repent. Just turn around and acknowledge, I'm sorry for acting independent of you, and I will behave more like a son and daughter and trust in you. All right. God never tempts us with evil. He has no evil to tempt us with. 
Zero. Temptation comes from the tempter, Satan, and our own earthly desires. That's what Scripture tells us. And there's a process in which one is tempted and there's a way in which death begins to manifest in their life. And it's when they don't, they don't disconnect from the tempter and the temptation. Then in the end, it produces death, which is separation from God. But that doesn't mean eternal separation. It just means temporal until we acknowledge him in all our ways. God, I acknowledge you that I have acted independent and I acknowledge you as the Lord of my life and you're reconnected and reestablished in that relationship and you have fellowship. And God is not going to condemn us. God cleanses us. So God never tempts us with evil. Temptation comes from Satan. I want to talk about two ways in which Satan tempts us. One is through manipulation. We live in a, in a world where a lot of people do things because they're manipulated or talked into doing them. They're convinced that I don't have any other choice. Either I do this or I'm going to pay a price. Either I go with the flow, I go with the crowd, you know, I go with the majority or I'm going to pay a price. So it's through manipulation. And he tries to get us, the tempter does, to doubt the character of God, and the faithfulness of God. And if he can get us to begin to doubt and to enter into that place of unbelief, he can begin to entice us to go down a road that's unhealthy for us. And the second way, if he cannot manipulate us, the second thing he does is he tries to intimidate us. And Peter said Satan is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he is going to begin to roar. And through that roar, he is going to try through fear to move you to a place that is not good for you and me. He's going to do that. So these are the two tactics, some of the tactics of the tempter, manipulation and intimidation. All right. What does all temptation begin with? Just a little compromise. Just like a little leaven. It's just a little bit. And you know, a little goes a long way when it comes to leaven. Because it works itself through the whole lump. It works itself through the whole lump. So be wise along those areas. And then the last thing I wrote is, the truth about temptation is... People who are devoted to prayer are led around temptation. And that's what Jesus said. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Pray, pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So when you and I are tempted to act independent of God through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh or the pride of life, that's where your prayer life preserves you from that temptation. People that pray are led around temptation. People that don't pray usually struggle with temptations because they begin to process things logically because they haven't developed a spiritual life. Your spiritual life is what saves you in the moment of temptation, not your natural strength or your human intellect. What saves and preserves us in the moment of temptation is our spirituality. How spiritual are we? 
And, and I'm not talking hyper-spirituality. I'm talking an abiding, daily, dependent relationship on Jesus. And recognizing Him, that, it, that we abide in Him and, and He abides in us. And that abiding relationship preserves and protects us from the manipulation and the intimidation of the enemy. So, when we're being tempted... It is an opportunity, isn't it, to prove out what we've been taught. The Apostle Paul asked the church, the Galatians, he said, you began in the spirit. Who pulled you over into the flesh? You began this thing in faith. How are you going to go on to maturity by trying to do it in your own strength. Don't act independent of God. It's through faith that we overcome the world, its lust, and its prideful ways. And faith is not of the flesh, and it's not of the human intellect. Faith is of the heart. For with the heart, one believes. So in the moment of temptation, prayer and our prayer life is what will preserve us. It's a great truth. We're going to see that in the life of Daniel here in a moment. So God is ever-present, and as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And when we call, Scripture says that he hears us and he responds. Through the sword of God's word and through the spirit of the living God, we overcome temptation. Now let's go back to Daniel and... Let's take a look in the second chapter at a, at a, in a moment in Daniel's time in life where he was being pulled on and he was being tempted. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to pick up in the 17th verse. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream, and he's very troubled, and, and none of his uh, magicians and soothsayers and uh, people that are involved with the occult could give him, uh, astrologers or the Chaldeans could give him any counsel. And uh, he made it very challenging because uh, he wasn't going to tell them to dream. Uh, he flipped the script, and, and none of them uh, could... You know, we're, they were all puzzled because they, if you don't tell us to dream, we can't give you the interpretation. He says, no, I, I need to find someone. I need to locate an individual who can not only tell me the dream, but the interpretation of it. And uh, in verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might, what, seek mercies from the God of heaven, because if if someone wasn't going to appease the king, then all of the wise men, all of the astrologers, all the Chaldeans, and all of the magicians were going to be executed. And uh, and Daniel and uh, his three companions were in that category. And, and so they were counselors to the king. And when Daniel found out what was what was going to happen, they began to pray. They began to seek the mercies of God. And uh, 
It says in verse 18 that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven and Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the season. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and I praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. And then verse 28, I just want to reiterate that verse. It says, For there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And then he gave the, the dream and the interpretation of it, which speaks dispensationally, prophetically, of the, of the times and seasons that are sovereignly in the hands of God. And, and it's an, it's amazing revelation. So let's get back to Daniel for a minute. Okay. Daniel was the prince of prophets and, and Daniel once again was a person of impeccable character, honorable. Uh, he was highly respected even amongst those that were not of his, his own race. Uh, and, and where he went, he found favor, opened doors. And I believe one of the reasons that Daniel was able to fight off these temptations that he faced to get into the flesh or to just live a lifestyle of ease and comfort uh, was because he was a person of prayer. He didn't pray occasionally. It was his custom to pray. He didn't pray when he was in trouble. He prayed when things were well. Prayer was an expression of his daily devotion to his God. He didn't forget about his God, even though he was drug into a foreign land. All right, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is here on the map and Babylon is here. Babylon is modern day Iraq. It's also known as Persia in scripture. It's 500 miles if you take the short route. It's 550 miles if you take the long route. There were three times that the Babylonians came and abducted people from Judea and from Jerusalem. Daniel was part of the first group of people that were abducted, and he would remain in Babylon for 70 years and live out the rest of his life there. And the reason 70 years was the timeline for their captivity is because for 490 years, God's people refused to keep the Sabbath. They didn't let the land rest, nor did they rest. They acted independent of God, and then the chickens came home to roost. Now, Daniel was not alive during that 490 years. He wasn't, the lifespan of man wasn't, extended at this time in history to that length. It had been shortened to 120 years under the sun. And so Daniel, Daniel wasn't personally responsible for all of this disobedience. And yet he was the one along with several others 
that were abducted and taken into captivity. And God permitted the king of Babylon at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, to come and to harvest not only the brightest and the best, but also to take away the gold out of the temple and to destroy the temple, which was one of the first prophecies that Daniel had insight into was not only the destruction of the temple, but the reestablishing of the temple in the day of Ezra. Ezra being a priest or a contemporary of David. And at the end of that 70 years, because it was one year for all of the time that they broke the Sabbath. So what is 70 times or divided by 490 is, is seven, seven. You get the math. Don't ask me to try to do that because I didn't do a good job. All right. So that's how long they were in captivity. But Daniel didn't forget his faith. He didn't forget his God. And so let's take a look into this second example of how powerful prayer is. And in Daniel chapter 6, we're going to pick up in the 10th verse. And let's continue to follow the narrative here. And this is when, of course... Uh, Daniel, under Darius, a new leader of the Medes and the Persians, uh, was uh, going to be thrown into the lion's den. And the only way that that could happen is that uh, uh, Daniel was found guilty of uh, new legislation. Uh, the new legislation was put in place because the other governors and the other rulers uh, of the land were very jealous and envious of Daniel. And they said, you know, we, we don't have anything. We don't have any dirt on this guy. Zero. We have zero dirt on this guy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to write a law that anyone who prays unto anyone but Darius for the next 30 days, if they're caught, then they get thrown into the lion's den. So this, once again, Daniel's tempted to go with the crowd. He's tempted to go and let peer pressure pull him into a place that he knows he shouldn't be. He feels the pull. Temptation is real because it's real. You can't be tempted to do something that you can't do. He could have done it, but he didn't. He chose another path. He chose the path of righteousness. He chose the path that God had for him. But, but there was a reason why he had strength to do so. It says, now when Daniel, verse 10, knew that the writing was signed or the new law was passed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. If you don't have that latter verse underlined, there's a reason why he rose to the top. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. They were spying him out. You think that there's, there's people spying out Christians today? Absolutely. They're going to see if you believe what you say you believe. It says, and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man, every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which 
which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due due regard or due respect for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petitions three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased within himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored until the going down of the sun to deliver him. Well, then these men approached the king and they said to him, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statue which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. So the king looked to do an executive order, and when he couldn't, he couldn't pass an executive order, then he was, you know, responsible to throw Daniel into the lion's den. He gave him the encouragement that he believed God would deliver him. And then in verse 17, then a stone was brought and it was laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his Lord that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting and no musicians. He didn't eat and he didn't enjoy a night of entertainment and no one was brought before him and his sleep left him just Uh, And here it is in verse 19. Then the king rose early in the morning and went in haste to the den of the lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. And the king said, uh, spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, the servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they could not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. And the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he, what's the last phrase, believed in his God. He believed in his God. How do we know he believed in his God? In that time of temptation, prayer led him around. Taking matters into his own hand, acting independently of God, giving place to the crowd and the pull of the crowd, just following the legislation. He knew, Daniel knew long before it was written in the book of Acts, it is better to obey God than obey man. When it comes to serving and following and living for the Lord and overcoming temptations, I want to finish with this statement. Stay on God's side. Stay on God's side. No matter what you see, no matter what you feel, no matter what your intellect is telling you, stay on God's side. Because it's through the sword of the Spirit and through the power of the Spirit that we overcome temptation. But your prayer life is a key factor in God being able to lead you around temptation for His name's sake. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged or inspired you to God's best. 
If you have any questions about today's message, need prayer, or would like to learn more about Living Word Fellowship, please call 641-828-7119 or visit us at lwfknoxville.com.